0: Start a clock here because I'm a prof. I have two times, 50 minutes and 75. So we either clock it or we're done in an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, So that's kind of all the options that we have here. Today's passage is an interesting one in that um, it seems like a lot of little disjointed pieces Normally, when we would read this text together, we would find our our Bibles would have multiple headlines in it, this parable, that parable, something else, this and that, but it really is a cohesive section. It actually goes on longer. It goes on into chapter 14, and what's interesting to me is it, it strikes me that this is the way our life seems to us, right? We sort of, each day is its own piece, getting up in the morning and I get ready, that part of my day is done. I go into work, and I teach a class, and that part of my day is done. I have lunch with someone, and that part of my day is done. I go home, I interact with my family, and that part of my day is done. And I think of it in these little moments that are all disconnected from each other. But if I step back, a passage like this makes me think, you know, this is all part of one piece. It's all part of my life. And I've kind of taken for granted that my life is holistic and headed somewhere That I'm walking in relationship with my family, with those around me, and with God, and that all of this, all these little discrete parts and pieces that I kind of chop up and forget about are all headed somewhere. What I find is that when I begin to take those for granted, that they're just parts of my day, and they're just things that I do and I leave behind, as I begin to take them for granted, they begin to lose their effect on me. My morning's just my morning. It's not a time to prepare for the day. It's not a time to get ready and get going to refocus my thoughts. My class is just a class that I teach because it was in my schedule, and now it's time to do that. The lunch that I had is not an opportunity to spend that time with that person, it was just on my calendar. And my relationships with my family can be just something they happen every day, and there was nothing unusual about today. I cannot tell you how many marriages that we've been involved counseling with where the primary complaint is, myself or my spouse, we just take it for granted because it just rolls along until something blows up. When we take things for granted, they begin to lose their significance. They begin to lose their place and they become just ordinary. But what our passage will teach us today is that no part of our life is ordinary It's all extraordinary under the reign and rule of God. There's no part of our life that is simply ordinary. And that goes for us today here. We gather here every week, right? In this place, at this time. And some of us, if you're like me, I came to faith when I was a little kid. So I've been gathering with parts of the body since I was born. I've been a follower of Christ since I was six. This can be ordinary for me. And today, Jesus will challenge us to say, there is nothing ordinary if you are under the reign and the rule of God. And that's our challenge for today, is to think about the ordinariness of our life in light of the gloriousness of his kingdom. And that's what the passage today will challenge us to do. So turn with me, if you will. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13. This is a long stretch, but I want to read the whole piece because it's easy to take this disjointedly. But it really does all flow together and one piece builds on the next. So I'm going to read from 13 verse 10 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 35. I want you to hear it all together once and then we'll work our way back through it. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed "'From your disability.' And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, "'There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day.' Then the Lord answered him, "'You hypocrites!' Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Then he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few?" And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last." At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets, And stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Behold your house is forsaken. And I tell you you will not see me until you say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father we ask as we consider these words of your son that we might come to understand more of the nature of your kingdom and the path to your kingdom, that we might understand your invitation to us today to join in your reign and to live under your rule. So we ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, that you might call us as you did this woman, that we might be freed. And so we ask all these things in the name of your Son and for your glory. Amen. That's interesting here. This is... um, one of several Sabbath stories that are told about Jesus and the healing that he does. And this one starts out rather unremarkably. He's teaching on the Sabbath, and a woman shows up there, and it's interesting, she does not come to Jesus to be healed. She's simply at the service. This indicates that likely this woman was a member of this synagogue, this congregation, and she came regularly here, and she shows up, and it's Jesus who notices her and calls her out, And begins to work the miracle in her that she might be freed from this disease that she had had for some 18 years. Likely indicator here is that her spine was fused and she was bent over, unable to straighten up. For 18 years she had been in this position. He calls her out and he speaks to her and immediately she was made straight. Now, notice her response here. This is the first real action in this story that begins to unfold what the nature of the kingdom is like. They're on the Sabbath. Jesus recognizes need for healing, need for freedom. He reaches out, and when she's healed, she glorifies God. See, the first thing that we're going to find when we study the nature of the kingdom, what is the kingdom like, is that the kingdom is about bringing people healing from oppression, freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from disease, and that Jesus doing these things is a sign that he is the Messiah who was promised. Along the way he said, "This you know who I am by what I do. By the fact that I'm casting out demons and I'm freeing people and I'm preaching the word. These are the marks of the kingdom. And the kingdom brings release from these things. And then her response, someone truly understands the reign and rule of God, her response is that she glorifies God for having been saved from her oppression. The nature of the kingdom is to bring Sabbath. See, the interesting thing here, as the, as the ruler of the synagogue, and this would have been functionally the person who ran the agenda. They're the service planner, if you will, okay? So Dan, if you're planning the services, this doesn't mean you're a bad guy, right? This is not a bad thing. Uh, planning's not bad, right? But he's the one who would have been responsible for inviting someone to speak, for setting out the portion that would have been done, for being in charge of the service, And he's laid out this wonderful service, and Jesus is there, and he's teaching, and this woman messes up his plans, right? This is when the speakers go out. This is when the projector doesn't work. This is when the stand falls apart while we're preaching, right? These are the things that come up and happen. Those are trivial, but you know what? Sometimes they're major. I had a friend who went and interviewed a rather large church to lead worship, and the church ran... Hollywood style. So he's leading, he's Dan, he's leading guitar and he's here and he's got someone in his ear on a mic going, 30 seconds, 15 seconds. And then someone comes up on stage and prays, they went over, cut the next song. And the whole time he's being scripted on exactly what to do because the service had to run perfectly. When we take things for granted, the little interruptions drive us nuts, right? You have children? Anyone? (laughs) Children ever interrupt you, right? In those moments, we're frustrated. Now, big picture, our children come to us. They have a question. They want to engage. They want to interact. That's a thing of beauty as a parent. If we're not having to draw them out and drag them in and they come to us, but when we take them for granted, it's a pain, And it blew up my schedule. And why do the conversations always start at 11 o'clock at night? If you don't have teens yet, you'll understand in a little while, and I'm really sorry. But what a gift of God that they would come and they would ask and they would seek. And we could have open conversations with them. But when I take that act of God for granted that he's moving and pressing them, I'm like the ruler of the synagogue. It annoys me. The Sabbath was given originally in creation, but when Moses taught about the Sabbath in Deuteronomy, he reframed it for them and he said, you're being given a Sabbath because you are set free from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And Jesus says, do you not get this? You're mad that I heal on the Sabbath someone who's been oppressed and needs to be set free. then he gets it into the daily life. And they had all sorts. None of this is in the scriptures. So the scriptures don't define exactly what work is or isn't on Sabbath. But they come up with all sorts of rules. So you could untie your ox. You could lead it to drink. You could get a bucket of water for it, but you could not hold the bucket while the animal drank. So, I mean, they've got all sorts of rules here about how this works out. And it's exactly the same word, to untie your ox and to free this woman from her oppression. And Jesus says, do you not get it? You take better care of your farm animals than you want me to care for this daughter of Abraham. She needs to be freed. And if this isn't what Sabbath means, then my goodness, you're clueless about what the kingdom is. And you're Israelites. You don't understand the rule and the reign of God. So he teaches back against this. And he teaches against what the ruler of the synagogue has said. And then here's where we come to the second piece of this. The nature of the kingdom... So the kingdom draws a lot of spectators. A lot of people in the kingdom are very excited to see what's happening in there. So you notice here that the crowd loves what Jesus says. And they rejoice at what he says. But then he still goes on because he's like, I don't think you really get it. Now, we don't know individually what's happening with all the folks in the crowd. But Jesus always draws large crowds who love the flash, They love the miracle. They love the feeding. And then when the harder things come, they typically bail and the crowd dwindles. Being a part of a larger church with multiple campuses, you'll see this in churches as well. As churches grow larger, there are people who come to see what's going on there. And as you get larger and larger, more and more people begin to hang around the fringes just to kind of see, and they may be wowed by the service. They may be wowed by an individual sermon. They may be wowed by all that's going on in the programming. But the question is, do they ever move to the place where the woman was that she was freed and she glorified God? So the kingdom draws people in and people are attracted to it and they watch it. So it goes on with two parables and then so so what how can I help you understand this? To what shall I compare the kingdom It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, he tells a number of versions of this parable. I think Jesus liked using the mustard seed because it was very illustrative. Most of the other passages that do this have a real emphasis on how small the seed is and compared to the smallness of the seed, how large the plant is. This one actually works a little bit differently. A mustard seed that grew up is nothing more than a big bush. And it's actually usually kind of hollow on the inside, so it's not a place where birds would nest. So part of what he's getting at here is this is unexpected. Man sows a mustard seed, and it grows into a tree. Well, not usually. It grows into a kind of a scrawny bush. And the birds of the air all come and nest in it. Well, not really, because it's usually not great for that sort of thing. It's usually not something that provides shelter. And the kingdom is like this. You look at it. Think about where they had been. They're in synagogue every week hearing the word of God, his deliverance of their people, his promises to come again, and they only respond when the extraordinary happens of this woman being healed. The ordinary of hearing the word, the ordinary of being taught, the ordinary of their history of deliverance and the promises to come are not enough to move them. He says, but the kingdom is more like this mustard seed. It's unexpected, and you're going to sow it, and it's going to provide shelter. You wanted service, but I'm here to give freedom. You wanted ritual, and I'm here to provide redemption. I'm here to free this woman from her bondage, and that's the purpose of the kingdom. It's sowed, and then it provides shelter, and it provides shelter for all who come to it. You would think it would be overwhelmed, this little bush But I tell you, it will be a tree. What he's kind of comparing this to, if you look at some of the language he's pulling on, is in the Old Testament, the primary image of all things glorious was the cedar. It's tall, it's flashy, it's on the heights. He says, that's what you expect the kingdom to look like. But the kingdom is in the ordinary, and the kingdom is here and now, and it will be unexpected as it shelters people in its branches. And it's not what you expect. It's like, okay, maybe let's go one more and see if we can get a different kind of impression here of what this is like. So he said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It was leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Okay, let me give you a different picture of it. The kingdom is like something that comes from the outside. It doesn't generate in you. And when we put it in, it slowly works its way out and has effect. See, you think you just come and you hear the word and you go home unchanged. You think you rehearse the history of our people and God's salvation of us and you go home and you're unchanged. You don't understand the kingdom. The kingdom is powerful and alive, and if you're really part of the kingdom, that leaven goes in and you are changed. There's no other option. That's the way the kingdom works. That's the way the rule and the reign of God works. So if you're really part of the kingdom, you will have been changed and shaped by it. Now, it's interesting. Leaven is normally a negative example, uh, something of it spoiling kind of the bread as we go along. But here it's a positive one because it gets at the idea that it's invisible. It's ordinary. You've all experienced this. And this is what the kingdom is like. It'll open up in your life and flower and blossom and the bread rises. It's unexpected and it's powerful but quiet. That's the nature of the kingdom. This woman glorified God because she was set free. She's been changed. So it goes on, and he's teaching in the next town, and someone comes to him and they say, Teacher, well, will it be few that come into the kingdom? Now, this sounds like a pretty legit question until you realize that this was a topic of big theological debate in the day and the rabbis were stacked up against each other in terms of who thought many who thought not a lot who thought all israel who thought just some and so they're really asking him you know what i need to post on facebook kind of in this theology group that i'm in and i need a reasoned opinion here i need to sound good so what's your answer to will there be few or will there be many and jesus says it's not about the answer it's about you doesn't answer the question. Notice what he says. Now, it would be easy to be sidetracked by the idea that the door is narrow. But what he gets at is not the answer, ultimately, how many will come in or how many won't. He gets it. you. You've asked this question. Strive, this command, to enter through the narrow door. You don't need to know how many. You need to worry about you. You need to strive to come in through the door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Forget about how many. You need to ask the question Have you taken for granted that you're part of the kingdom? Have you just assumed that you're going to be in? And notice the story that he tells here is that it will be common for people to assume that they are in the kingdom. So when he says, I do not know where you came from, then they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. You were my neighbor. I attended your service. I heard you teach at the synagogue. I saw you heal that woman. And Jesus will say, I don't know where you came from. You didn't come from the kingdom. How many will be there? Will you be there? Strive to enter. Now, we want to be cautious here. Remember the balance overall of what's being taught here. The emphasis is not on personal work to get in. The emphasis here is on not taking it for granted that you're in. Because remember, he calls to the woman. He initiates her healing and entrance into the kingdom. The mustard seed is sown and provides shelter. The leaven is placed from outside in the lump and does its work. There's emphasis here in subtle ways on this work being something that is done and offered for us. The striving here is not so much about the ability to get in as it is to ask the question, am I taking it for granted that I have a relationship with God? Why might they do that? Well, because they're Israelites. We're the people of God. I surely must be on the inside of this kingdom. I must be. I've been in church since I was a kid. I served. I have worked. But it's so easy to do the acts of service, to do the ritual, and take for granted the relationship. And, and, and I say this. So, so in my field, what I do for a living, it's probably the most hazardous. Right? I teach the scriptures for a living. And I have for years now. So when I sit down and study, I'm on the clock. When I go teach, I'm on the clock. And I've done other jobs where I was on the clock, so I can begin to feel and move in this direction that this is just what I do. I must be in because I handle the Word all day long. For some of you, you helped plant this church here in this place. I must be. Now, this is not a call to doubt our salvation. This is not a call to look, but it's a call to not assume that the relationship is just cultivated because we sat in the same place. You can sit in the same living room with a spouse for 40 years and not know them. You can raise your child for 18 years and have no relationship with them. You can attend a worship service for a lifetime having never worshiped. Have you been set free? Have you been changed? And are you striving to say, God, work in my life. I don't want to take our relationship for granted. I want to go deeper. I want the leaven of your word to spread in my life and change me. I want to seek shelter under your wings. But that's what he calls him to here. I will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This is the ultimate sign that the people who are knocking on the door have not been changed. Because they're still living the same life. They've not been set free from their sin. They're still working the same deeds of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are cast out. People will come from east and west, north and south. This is not just about Israel. From all over the globe, they're going to come and join the kingdom of God, not because they're Israelites, not because they grew up in this church, not because they lived in that neighborhood, but because they heard Jesus call and say, come over, and they were set free, and they've been changed, and they've glorified God and cast themselves on his mercy, sought shelter in the bush, They've been changed by the leaven of the word. That's interesting here. This very hour, Pharisees came and said to him, go away from here for Herod wants to kill you. There's a lot of debate if you read the commentaries about exactly what's going on here. Are some of the Pharisees actually concerned about Jesus? Are they in cahoots with Herod because they both just want him out so he stops making trouble in their region? Or is this totally made up? Herod's not thinking anything, but they're using Herod's name to try and move Jesus on. The interesting response is here is that the path to the kingdom is not altered by outside opposition, right? The nature of the kingdom is that it is people who are changed and who live under the reign and rule of God, and the path to the kingdom is through Jesus, cannot be altered, and it cannot be stopped. Notice what he says here. Go and tell Herod that old fox. Uh, fox is not necessarily wily in this culture. It's sort of as someone who's functionally unimportant. You know, you're really not that big of a deal, so move on. I'm kind of done with you. Right? You notice when, he, when he's with Herod late, he says nothing to him. I have no words for you, which is actually the worst place to be in with Jesus. When he has nothing else to say, that's the worst place to be. And that's where he is later with Herod. Go and tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today, tomorrow, the third day I finish my course. God has a plan. I'm fulfilling the plan that he's laid out for me, and there's nothing you can do to alter that, and it's going to happen today, and it's going to happen tomorrow, and it's going to happen the day after tomorrow. Now, there could be some references here to the resurrection the third day, but mostly this is an idea of in the short time I'm following God's plan, and you cannot derail it. There's nothing that you can do. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Warn me off all you want. This is going to come to a head in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place that God chose to place his name. Jerusalem is the place where his people have rejected his name. And Jerusalem is the place where I'm going to offer salvation. And there's nothing you can do to change that. This is the way life is because the path to the kingdom comes through me. It doesn't come by saying, I was in town with you doesn't come by saying, I saw you teach. doesn't come by saying, I lived near you. I was a part of that community. It comes through Jesus who is going to finish his course. Then he offers this lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. The parable about entering the king's kingdom and knocking at the door make it sounds like people are trying to come in and they're not able, that something is opposed to them. But when he steps out of the story mode, he says, look, we come to you over and over through the prophets and now through himself as he teaches, and I offered to gather you in and every time you said no. You knock at the door when you see the flash and the glorious thing. But when I ask you to come under the reign and rule of God, you say, I'm good. And if I press you that you need to be under the reign and rule of God, then you become hostile, and you kill those that I've sent, and ultimately you're going to kill me. They weren't left out of the kingdom knocking at the door because they couldn't find the magic door, right? This is not Lord of the Rings. that They didn't know the password. They didn't know how to get in. It's none of that kind of stuff. They're left out because they refused to enter in. They wanted the blessing, but they refused the reign. And the path to the kingdom is only through the reign and rule of God. And it begins with the acceptance of Jesus. It says, Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118. And it's really interesting, I I think, in terms of his choice of this text. It is what's spoken of him as he comes into the city when they shout Hosanna as he enters just before his crucifixion. But I don't think that really fulfills what he's talking about here. And there's a little bit of a sense in which this is what will happen at the end. But I think what he's getting at here is where he began. This section begins with a woman who encountered the kingdom and who glorified God. With people who saw the action and rejoiced, but now they have to choose. Do we react by coming under the reign and rule of God, or do we refuse and reject his message again? I say that because of the context of Psalm 118. Here at the end of the psalm, and I'm going to dive in about verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the same context as he says here, Jerusalem, you've rejected me. But now the stone that you've rejected is the cornerstone of the kingdom. It is the foundation of your salvation. And this is the only way that this works. This is the Lord's doing that the rejected stone has become the cornerstone. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now that sounds a lot like the people in the crowd who saw Jesus heal that woman. But notice what comes next in between the section of rejection and the section at the end that blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. We might translate this, let us flourish. The ordinariness of life, everything from our salvation to every part of our mundane lives, Save us and make us flourish because it's all under your reign and rule. That's what it looks like when someone sees the kingdom and then moves to glorify God. Save us. Shelter us in the bush. Let your leaven work its way in us that we might be changed from the inside. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It was rejected, but we are part of the house that is not. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Jesus comes as the light of the world. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords and go up to the horns of the altar. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be bound to be that sacrifice. And then notice how a psalm turns personal. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is saying you're only going to see me when you finally understand who I am. Not when you see me teach, not when you're in my neighborhood, but because you finally go, I get it. You have called me and I understand that you are my sacrifice being bound to be taken to the cross, that I might be delivered, that I might cry out to you, save me. Make my life flourish because there's no part that isn't under your reign and your rule. There's no autopilot. There's nothing taken for granted. It's all part of what you're doing in my life. That's the path to the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom is such that people who are in it are changed unexpectedly. The nature of the kingdom is that those who are in it are sheltered in it and they live under the reign and rule and protection of God. The path to the kingdom is not by proximity, it's not by tradition, it's not by pedigree, not by lineage the path to the kingdom is through the sacrifice of Christ and the willing acceptance of his shelter, of his release of his Sabbath and living under his reign and his rule that's the path to the kingdom when we move from the invitation to the acceptance save us O God make our lives flourish The nature of the kingdom is that it's easy to miss. mustard plant in the garden is not a showstopper, right? It doesn't show up on HDTV. It's not in the parade. It's used for a little seasoning. It's not even salt. The nature of the kingdom is such that it works kind of mysteriously behind the scenes. There are a handful of really kind of glorious public. This woman is healed. But so many more of them are, yes, Lord, save me. I need my life to flourish under your rule and your reign. It's easy to miss. But the nature of the kingdom is such that its path is clear and we see it and we'll be both shocked and horrified to stand on the outside of it and say, how could I not be in The call of Christ is not to doubt salvation. The call of Christ is not to wonder about whether or not you're in. The call of Christ is to say two things. One is, are you striving to say, Lord, bring me into the kingdom? Put me under your reign and rule. And then are you asking, Father, how today does this mundane part of my life flourish because I'm sitting under your reign and your rule? I will bless you because you've come in the name of the Lord. And I will ask you to work in my life. This is the nature of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we continue to reflect on your word and as we sing worship songs to you that you might continue to teach us and grow us, that we might understand more of the nature and the path to your kingdom. We ask that you might give us a greater vision of Christ and his ministry and all these things we ask in his name. Amen.